You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining today. I am really excited to have with me um, a special guest um, that's going to talk to us a little bit about the transport energy side of things, but also bring in his vast experience on the power uh, generation side as well. I'm super excited to welcome Neil Chatterjee to the program. So many of you will be familiar um, with Neil's name. And the reason is he's a former commissioner and chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, also known as FERC. Uh, Prior to his time at the commission, Neil served as an advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell, where he aided in the passage of major energy, highway, and agriculture legislation. Neil also has experience working as a principal in government relations for the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, and he began his career as a staff member on the House Committee on Ways and Means. There's a lot of deep knowledge and expertise um, in the energy sector, and we're super excited to welcome him to the program. Neil? Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, oh, great to, great to have you. And I have so many questions um, that I want to ask you, but let's start with um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which you know was uh, recently enacted. So I want to talk to you about you know, what you think about um, the act uh, in general um, and sort of this approach on incentivizing uh, decarbonization in all sectors, really. I mean, but especially on the energy side, power generation and transport energy. Let's start there. What's your reaction um, to the, the, the legislation? And then I want to ask you some more details um, on the electric vehicle side of the coin. Sure. Look, um, passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, as it pertains to energy policy specifically, uh, was a big deal. Um, you know, it's a considerable investment uh, in a host of energy technologies that I think will help us drive towards decarbonization while also, you know, maintaining reliability and affordability in the uh, in the energy sector. Um, I think there were some really smart policy initiatives. I particularly appreciated the investment in domestic manufacturing and really mm-hmm. bringing the supply chain that will be necessary for the future of electric vehicles, for the future of decarbonization technologies in the electricity space home to the U.S. So we don't find ourselves in a situation down the road where we're dependent on potentially adversarial nations for the component parts of these technologies that are so essential to our energy future. Really good policies there. I think that the stability that will come out of the passage of this long-term tax credits for wind, for solar, for hydrogen, for storage, for carbon capture. I think providing not just the incentives, but the duration uh, is just important for investors and for capital. I think one of the things that has been problematic uh, in the past few years is that these these provisions have been falling into these extender packages that may or may not get done at the end of the year in particular Congresses. And, you know, that, that has a chilling effect on investment. And so I think being able to provide that clarity and stability, um, I think is fantastic. Uh, So, you know, this is a big deal that does a lot of things across a lot of spaces. My only quibble with it, to be honest, is uh, I do wish it had been bipartisan 
And I think that we were not in the environment we're in today where everything has become polarizing, including energy policy. This very easily could have been the Energy Policy Act of 22. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look at the combination of offshore leasing coupled with permitting reform, which is, looks like it's going to come here sometime this fall, paired with these tax incentives, that's something that would have garnered bipartisan support. And I wish uh, Congress had gone down that route. I do worry that uh, because this was done on a party line basis, it may further add to the political polarization around clean energy and the energy transition and decarbonization. And that's unfortunate. You know, I'm a Mm -hmm. Republican from Kentucky who believes climate change is real and that we need to take urgent and smart steps to mitigate emissions. I don't think these issues should be political, uh, but I do worry that they will become political. Uh, But that's just the reality that we all have to live with. So one thing that I want to ask you about is um, you talked about the the lack of um, sort of a true bipartisan policy. But in your view, what makes a good, you know, you've been in the policymaking business for a long time. What makes a good climate and energy policy in your view? And by the way, why isn't there on the Republican side? I mean, some of these these things that are in the act or, um, you know, that, that are happening, sort of bringing jobs, you know, battery manufacturing, like these are all, um, you know, good things that bring, you know, bring benefit. Um, and they're actually going into Republican states. So, you know, why isn't there, why shouldn't we have more of a Republican sort of energy platform beyond just, you know, drilling? You know, so, yeah, I'm wondering if you can comment about on those two questions. What's a good climate policy? And do you see the Republican side coming up with more of a climate energy alternative? Because I think there's a big vacuum there and there's an opportunity there. Yeah, look, um, I actually think a lot of the the policy that was included in the IRA um, would have garnered considerable Republican support. Um, I think, you know, particularly when you look at some of the tax incentives, these are these are provisions that have been supported by Republicans in the past. I spent a considerable portion of my career working as an energy policy aide in the United States Senate. And during that time, we worked on a number of bipartisan bills. Most of the legislation that I worked on during my tenure didn't pass the Senate with the bare minimum 60 votes. We often got north of 80 or 90 votes because energy policy issues historically have not been polarizing or political. Uh, and we were able to get bipartisan consensus. And so just, you know, examples of some of the things we worked on, um, you know, Senator McConnell negotiated an infrastructure bill that had a number of energy policies in it with Senator Barbara Boxer of California, mm-hmm. you know, two polar opposites on the political spectrum came together on infrastructure. Um, when I was an aide, Senator McConnell working hand in glove with Senator Reed of Nevada, who at the time was the Democratic leader, as well as Uh, President Obama and the Obama administration, we negotiated a compromise where we expanded and extended credits for clean energy technologies and paired that with the lifting of the crude oil export ban. And, you know, that had sort of been the ethos in Congress for a long time when it came to energy policy. Um, And so it didn't need to be, you know, political or polarizing. And so I think as I look to the future, you know, House Republicans uh, in particular have 
uh, led by Congressman Curtis of Utah and uh, Congressman Graves of Louisiana, you know, have been very open about talking about innovation and a, and a clean technology innovation agenda. I think a lot of what they probably would have wanted to focus on um, potentially was included in this bill. Uh, similarly, you've got uh, a lot of leaders on the Republican side in the Senate, Senator Murkowski, Senator Cassidy, um, Senator Romney, uh, Senator Kramer, who you know really tried to work with Democrats on a bipartisan approach to a lot of the issues that wound up being included in this package. Hmm. I think they're frustrated that the process that was used was a political one, not yeah. necessarily the policy. And that's really where the, and it's a very wonky DC inside baseball thing uh, that I think most Americans rightly don't pay attention to and shouldn't. But the reality was the vehicle that was used to pass this budget reconciliation is designed to be partisan. It's designed to circumvent the Senate minority and the Senate's 60 vote filibuster threshold. And I think that is the source of the frustration. Otherwise, I think you would have seen you know, I think a similar coalition that came together to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill last year, I mm-hmm. think that same coalition could have come together and done a bipartisan energy bill had it not been for the reconciliation process. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting um, perspective. One of the things that I'm seeing that um, I don't know, it'd be interesting to get your your takeaway um, is, you know, the appetite for complicated regulatory programs like you you don't you're not seeing that in this legislation what you're seeing is you know okay we're going to incentivize our way to um, decarbonization so what does that mean for things that for policies that you've actually supported you've supported things like carbon pricing um, in the past Um, will we see policies like that cap and trade uh, carbon taxation, um, are those things gone? And and is this going to be a trend where, you know, to get the things that, that we want to happen on climate and energy, we're just going to do incentives and sort of stay away from regulatory programs that will likely end up in, you know, years of litigation, that kind of thing. Yeah, look, I think one of the challenges of the process that was pursued of using this uh, a budget vehicle, the reconciliation process to move this, is the Senate has very strict rules on what can and cannot be included in a reconciliation vehicle. Um, the parliamentarian has considerable power to determine whether a potential provision uh, is budgetary in nature or has a policy impact. And due to that restriction, it's hard to get anything that would be like substantive policy or delving into a complicated regulatory framework through the budget reconciliation process. And so you wind up being limited to what you can get through, which are things like tax incentives and changes in the tax code. And that's been one of my big frustrations regarding energy policy writ large. We really haven't passed a major energy Mm -mm. bill in Congress since the Energy Policy Act of 2005. All subsequent energy policy has been done either through omnibus appropriation bills or through the tax code or through these budget deals. And so they're not subject to, you know, the, the same parameters that substantive legislative policy would have. They're not really, you know, uh, uh, the product of committee deliberations and hearing Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate because, look, as someone who sat um, at a regulatory agency, what I found was that 
in the absence of federal legislative guidance on energy policy and an update really in 15 years, more and more of the key decisions regarding the energy transition were falling to regulatory bodies like FERC. And look, we didn't have the tools at FERC to make the kinds of decisions and make the kinds of policy changes that are necessary to accommodate innovation and the energy transition. And so um, I do hope that, you know, there is still a window for, for that kind of policymaking going forward. I have been in divided government uh, multiple times throughout the course of my career. Mm-hmm. And we've actually been counter to the, to the narrative. We've been very productive during times when we've had divided government. And sometimes you get durable policy when it's bipartisan and done with divided government and no one you know, political party has to own it one way or the other. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how things play out in the energy space post IRA. I think initially this IRA, because it, you know, was so all encompassing, probably takes the wind out of the sails of, of, of a lot of things in the legislative arena that could have been done going forward. Um, but I think long-term what we'll see is, uh, and I hope I'm wrong, but I suspect the, IRA is going to significantly underperform in terms of emissions reductions. And recognize very quickly that we need additional policies to get there. I, for one, prefer market-based solutions over regulations, which is why during my tenure at FERC, I came out so Mm -hmm. strongly in favor of a price on carbon. Um, In Mm -hmm. my view, uh, a price on carbon is a vastly superior tool Mm -hmm. to reduce emissions. compared to regulations and quite frankly, as compared to subsidies as well, because we have to focus on reliability. Uh, One of the concerns I have with subsidies is that subsidies pick and choose winners and losers amongst fuel supply. And sometimes those losers are necessary to maintain reliability and affordability. And I prefer engineers and markets to make decisions about when uh, uh, to transition resources. Uh, so, you know, uh, to me, I think that's better policy. The challenge is politically, we just saw it with this legislation. It's much easier to pass incentives than it is uh, mm-hmm. carbon. Everyone agrees if you care about decarbonization, I don't say everyone, but economists, experts, energy mm-hmm. experts, yeah. experts would agree a price on carbon is the most effective, efficient way to go about reducing emissions. Unfortunately, the politics around a price on carbon are really, 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 really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's something that we need to continue to work on. I think right now, you know, um, in a time that Americans are, are feeling the pain of inflationary pressure, really tough to try and, you know, talk about, you know, putting a price on carbon and potentially increasing energy costs. Um, but at the, and at the same time, the, the political left has lost some some of the enthusiasm around a price on carbon. And I think they're excited by the prospects of the IRA. But if the IRA does underperform in terms of emissions reductions, I think that may reinvigorate uh, some conversation about a market-based solution. I'm hopeful that more and more Republicans will appreciate market-based solutions um, yeah. as alternatives to regulation and subsidies. It's going to take work. But I'm, I'm committed to working on it and many others are as well. 
So it's you're the first person um, since the act was signed uh, by President Biden who said mm, this might underperform. I mean, Rhodium's come out with an analysis. Princeton's come out with an, the analysis. You know, there's going to be a 40 percent reduction. And yet you're one of the first people that I've heard say, well, we I don't know if that's gonna, going to happen. That's um that's really interesting because it's all like we can get there on incentives and <laughs> well, we might not. Even the rhodium analysis, it, it projected, you know, I believe uh, uh, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 32% to 42% reductions yeah. Yeah. Uh, with a number of assumptions, including like 100% deployment of electric vehicles by 2030. But it's it not going to happen. <laughs> it, it, but in that same analysis, it said with no bill at all, you'd get somewhere between a 24% and 35% reduction just based on where the markets are taking us in terms of decarbonization today. And so when you factor that in, that no bill at all, we would have still gotten 24 to 35%. And the bill might only get us somewhere in the neighborhood of 32 to 42%. It starts looking like a really modest impact yeah. in terms of decarbonization. Yeah, yeah. I want to turn to... Um, the issue of electric vehicles from your perspective a little more deeply. I think the first thing is, is it, it the question that seems to arise frequently um, for, for some folks is, oh, can the grid handle uh, a massive scale up of EVs, especially on the timeline that the Biden administration is targeting, which is 50% uh, sales by 2030. So my question to you as an expert, as a regulator is, can it? And what needs to happen um, on the power generation side, you know, to to enable that, you know, and how do things like resiliency um, fit in? Do we have the right mix of policies to really support the scale up? And it's not just like duty vehicles. I mean, now there's talk about medium duty vehicles, um, electrification, heavy duty vehicles. You know, states like California have uh, mandates, as you know, there's a lot of talk in the news about the, the car ban uh, regulation that's about to be signed that that, you know, some, some of the states are following, they're following them to heavy duty trucks as well. What's your, what's your view on those issues as it relates to um, power generation and the grid? So I think I, I had greater concerns a number of years ago. One of the big concerns that I had was that if uh, the projections were accurate, we would see this significant spike up in demand. There wasn't a lot of communication and coordination between the auto industry and the utility industry. You know, I found it very interesting. You have these two giant sectors of the American economy, and there's not a lot of familiarity between them, not only in terms of like the substance and policy and structure, even just relationships. Like the CEOs don't really know each other, at least they didn't in the past. I think some of those barriers have become overcome and there has been a lot more coordination amongst the utility sector uh, and, and, and the automotive sector. I think in particular, utilities are excited about the prospect of increased vehicle electrification. Um, mm -hmm. Electricity demand has been relatively flat for more than a decade. And so I think utilities are, are definitely uh, um, um, you know, very much in favor of the, the prospect of increased demand that will arise from greater vehicle electrification. The challenge will be getting the logistics right. And I think, you know, when we spoke earlier about why I think both of us expressed some skepticism about the possibility of having 100% deployment of electric vehicles by 2030, to yeah. me, the real challenge will be 
um, logistics and culture. You know, culturally, I think Americans are so used to, you know, uh, uh, our, our engine based cars, um, convincing people to switch mm-hmm. to electric, um, yes. will, will involve an element there, but I think companies are being really smart. Like I love this Ford F-150 electric pickup, which is, you know, demand for that is through the roof. I think that's a smart way to, to make, uh, EVs more mainstream, uh, for consumers. But the other thing is we got to address concerns people have regarding range anxiety and where they can charge and how they can charge and how fast they can charge. You know, right now, if you're charging at home overnight, that's fine. Um, and if you're just using an EV to commute locally, you know, you can you can get it done. But not every community has charging stations available. Not everyone has a garage where they can, par- you know, plug in a car. We have to think through some of those obstacles. Um, and then in terms of like long-term range anxiety, right? Uh, if you want to go beyond just commuting locally uh, and you want to take uh, a much longer road trip in your electric vehicle, you want to be comfortable that you have the infrastructure in place to charge your vehicle. And, you know, that is where I think some, it it gets really, really intricate and, and, and complicated. So to me, it is not in the utilities interest to be in the service station business, to be in the charging business, you know, utilities should benefit from the uptick in demand, but they don't want to be selling hot dogs and coffee. And I was, uh, look, the ideal way to do this would be to kind of partner with the existing petroleum refueling network, right? You have petroleum retailers all around the country that are basically real estate companies. They're real estate companies who happen to sell a particular commodity today, gasoline, but they would gladly pivot to replacing the petroleum refueling with electrical vehicle charging, it makes sense because their footprint is already where people are comfortable to go to recharge. Right. But brokering that arrangement is proving to be rather complicated because what you have is in some states, the resale of the sale of electricity could potentially subject you to utility uh, jurisdiction. Um, EV charging station, you know, these, these petroleum retail owners would have to make considerable investments in, in updating their stations to accommodate this new charging equipment. And I think if they can't charge for the electricity or they're subject to demand charges and the like, I don't think the math pencils out for them that someone would come in, plug in their EV, charge for 30 minutes, and then go inside and get a bag of chips and a soda that economic equation, I don't think pencils out for a lot of these retailers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we got to find a way to broker arrangements between utilities and these retailers uh, to accommodate that. We need to get charging stations put in, in greater locations and find ways to, to address some of these issues. Um, and so that's going to take investment, but that's also going to take you know really thoughtful uh, analysis and study and planning to get right. And so it's a super exciting opportunity, uh, but there are certainly hurdles in place um, that that need to be addressed. So what you're saying is, is really interesting. Um, I've worked with um, fuel retailers that are making um, that selection. And I think that it's, there is one thing that I've noticed, but I've also gotten to know um, in my, in my work, some of the utilities involved like Duke Energy and, 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 and as a, as an example, and it is interesting um, because I think part of the issue also is 
um, the cultures are very different um, because of the nature in which the way their businesses operate. So it's like taking two different cultures and trying to <laughs> put them together and they might not quite uh, sort of speak the 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 same uh, language. It's it's been a it's been really interesting. It's um it's like you know farmers in the oil industry. It's like never the twain did they meet until we had an RFS. Um, and then suddenly we all had to get a lot sharper real quick um, about um, you know farming, ag, um, biofuels, feedstocks, so on and so forth. So I wonder if you had any any thoughts about that because I think that does sort of influence um, how things work. Yeah, I think that learning is occurring now. Um, and, but it, you are right. You have totally different cultures. You have totally different setups. Um, look, the culture within the utility industry uh, differs based on region. You've got, you know, you still have some regions of the country that have traditional vertically integrated utilities that, you know, whose, whose rates, terms, and conditions are set by their local PUCs. You have other utilities that participate in competitive markets. The culture just within the utility industry varies greatly based on the structure of the utility. Um, you know, similarly, you know, within the auto industry, um, you know, within the refueling industry, you know, these are folks who this is new to everybody. And we're all kind of trying to sort out and figure out the best way forward. I think there's an intimidation factor for a lot of folks, uh, particularly looking at how to get the footprint right for where to put charging. They're not familiar with state PUCs. They're not familiar with FERC. They're not familiar with utility tariffs, which are super complicated. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take a while to overcome that learning curve and get there. And similarly for utilities, I think, you know, look, they need some assurance that this is going to work out for them as well. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I don't think they want to be in the selling hot dogs and coffee business. And so there ought to be a way to, to get to the table and broker some of these compromises and make them work and put efficient policies in place. But it's going to take more of the, the folks from these different industries learning not just the policies, but the personalities so we can forge the relationships to build that trust to get the utility, the charging folks together to, to find a workable path forward. What do you see, you know, one of the thing, issues that you, you raised um, a bit earlier is the issue of demand charges. Do you see state PUCs um, beginning to really address that with respect to to EV charging because I think that is a major major barrier. I mean, you've got some utilities or some states that offer you know um, you know more electric vehicle charging designed uh, rates, um, but it's certainly not widespread yet. So, what's your thought on that? This is where I think I hope we don't go down a combative path. And that that's why I keep using this word compromise. I keep talking about the importance of relationships. I want the utilities and the charging folks to get together and work this out. If it becomes combative at the PUC level, I can tell you right now, the utilities are going to prevail in most regions of the country because mm. PUCs know the utilities, they know their structures, they know their frameworks. The utilities know their tariffs, they know the PUCs. And, you know, uh, I think it'll be much more difficult for, you know, counterparties to come in and prevail at a state PUC or even in a state legislature. And so um, my counsel would be get together and work this out and find an equitable path forward. Uh, but, you know, there may be certain utilities who don't want that, who understand their inherent advantage 
practice within their state PUCs um, and who don't want to back off of demand charges because they know they can prevail. Um, you know, my, in my view, to really make sure we get this investment right. And the federal government, state government, industry, they're all making considerable investments in the transition to EVs. To get it right, um, I think we all have to come to the table. So how do you see from a, you know, we have an IRA now, we have federal funding from the infrastructure legislation um, last year passed in 2021, NEVI, we had the Dieselgate uh, settlement uh, several years ago, which which provided um, funding for charging. Um, how do you see you know, the market scaling up? More models are coming um, coming out. Uh, Five hundred plus billion dollars of investment from the from the auto industry. So, from your standpoint, how do you see ultimately the the EV market and EV charging evolving over these next uh, ten years? What are the biggest um, opportunities and challenges, in your opinion, to to developing the infrastructure to supporting EV scale up? Yeah, I mean, look, there's huge, huge opportunity here, and it's definitely a very, very exciting time to be in the space. Uh, but a lot of what we've already talked about to this point, you know, cultural challenges, logistical challenges, locational challenges, you know, are, are, are going to have to be addressed. Um, I think, you know, uh, there is still a perception that um, EVs are, you know, mainly for the wealthy, that the 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 cost is too much. The price point is too high. There have been promises about bringing down the cost of EVs, um, but I I don't know that that has been borne out yet. And so I think that is a barrier that needs to be overcome. Um, but I, I think it can be, and I think there's huge opportunity there. Um, but you know, th th there's a lot that has to go right. Um, but you know that that's always the case when you know uh, we see that in electricity in the energy transition. And I'm sure we'll see it uh, in the EV space as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm encouraged by it. Um, I think um, competition in the space uh, is really beneficial. I think it will lead to greater innovation um, and will also, uh, you know, lead to, to cost discipline and driving prices down and making EVs more accessible and affordable. Uh, so I love the fact that more and more companies are getting into the EV space. Um, and uh, I, I think that the fact that the major autos are now making these considerable investments is a, is a real sign that there's a promising future here. So fun and last question. What excites you most about the, the energy space and why? Innovation. Um, you know, one of the cool things, I, I was so fortunate to have uh, a front row seat to the energy transition during my time at FERC. And it gave me the ability, because of the convening authority at the agency and be, the ability to bring people together, uh, to, to meet with some of the smartest, you know, uh, uh, most ambitious, courageous, innovative people out there. And I'm really excited to see the, 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 fundamental transformation that can occur uh, because of innovation. You know, I, I work in the policy arena. I work in the political arena. You know, as we spoke at the beginning of this podcast, you know, we've struggled to really get energy policy done to achieve carbon reductions and, 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 um, and, and really, you know, transform the regulatory and, and, and landscape, but it hasn't mattered because the market has been working because innovative new technologies have been coming in and uh, we're able to generate and consume electricity in, in cleaner, 
and more efficient ways. And it's super exciting to see that. Um, one of the things that I'm proudest of, or a couple of things that I'm proudest of during my tenure at FERC is we work really hard uh, on a couple of FERC uh, policies, a couple of FERC orders that remove barriers to entry for new technologies, uh, for energy storage, and for aggregated distributed energy resources. Here, think EVs, think you know, rooftop solar, advanced appliances. And what we did was basically remove some of the barriers that existed within the uh, power markets to enable these resources to be able to be compensated for all of their attributes, for capacity, for energy, for ancillary services. And I'm super excited to see what will emanate from those rulemakings, because I think what it will do is drive greater innovation, will lead us to the breakthrough in long duration storage. Um, and with this aggregated distributed energy rule, like when you think about it, you know, you, if you have one electric vehicle, your ability to impact a power market is nil. But if through the power of aggregation, you can harness thousands and thousands and thousands of EVs, suddenly you're competing against the power plant down the street and you're doing it at the point of demand. And what could be really exciting there is not only would this lead to decarbonization in the power sector, but this power sector reform could theoretically enable what we've been talking about, the accelerated deployment of EVs, which could lead to emissions reductions in the auto sector. And to me, that's like super exciting to think about. And, and it's what makes me so eager to be a part of this industry. Um, you know, I think it's an exciting time. You know, the politics of it are, 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 are frustrating to guys like me sometimes. Like I, I personally think that this antiquated notion that if you're for fossil fuels, you're of the political right. And if you're for clean energy, you're of the political left. Uh, it's totally outdated. And, and it's here, out here. We got to yes. get past yeah. And conservatives and Republicans need to embrace the opportunities in the clean energy transition. And um, when we start to see some of these benefits, job creation, um, lower costs because of greater efficiencies, benefits to consumers. Um, you know, it, it, to me, uh, I am very, very optimistic about what our energy future holds and, and really love working in this space. Well, Neil, it was great to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer, and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more, and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.